Tord wrote an article. Like an article came out of Tord's today. Strongest grass deck. All right. Well, strongest grass deck still sucks. <laughs> like, you can build the strongest grass deck you want. Still going to be terrible. <laughs> <laughs> very very cool all right welcome to the trash lounge i'm Brent halliburton here as always with uh, brit pibus and mike boucher attendance is 100 percent. you guys will be happy to know that we are now up to eight five star reviews wow. it's all five stars all the time and we got another review Ooh. cam 009 says five of five podcasts Love this podcast. I was hoping you guys could talk about what you guys do to improve as a player. Also, please pronounce Eternatus correctly. It's driving me insane. I, I think actually I pronounce feel it right. that. I think I pronounce it right. We started off like not knowing, but I think I think it's Eternatus and not Eternatus. Yeah, I know. I, I I believe that's I am the one saying it incorrectly, and I it's one of those things where I I'm at least a li- mostly aware that it's incorrect, and it's just a a, a habit. At this turn, like I know, I'm just saying tornadoes essentially with an e <laughs> on the front. Um, it's funny, like I've I there's a couple Pokemon that you know, just forever like growing up with my brothers, we would say it a certain way, and then many years later we found out that we were saying it wrong, and like you look back at the spelling of it and you're like, obviously it's that. But so like one of the examples is Kyogre. Like for some reason we just always said it as Kyrogue. And because maybe like we just saw it, you know, the R and the G switched around. Maybe it was just easier to say that way. And like for years and years, we were just calling it that. And then eventually someone was like, what Pokemon are you talking about? Like, <laughs> so. It's like Tyrogue with a K. Right, exactly. <laughs> you know, uh, I mean, look at Brett Favre. I feel like in pop culture, there are spellings that are pronounced totally different than uh, could ever possibly be interpreted from their spellings. And Pokemon should be no different. Mm-hmm. But I think, I think Cam makes an excellent point. Cam, we super appreciate both the review and the fantastic uh, feedback because you're right. I don't know if it's Britt's fault or if it's my fault, but, but somehow I definitely feel like every time I say it, it makes me cringe a little on the inside because I don't know what the heck is going on. Like, I just somehow got off completely on the wrong foot when it came to that Pokemon. What about what, uh, yes, what do you do to improve as a player? How would you guys answer that? a lot of steps to it i think and i think we could probably like do a whole show on this but the first thing that comes to mind to me is like play the play the good decks like i feel like it's a it's an when when you start you really want to like make your own stuff and that's like the exciting part of of the game which is deck building that's a really important part to to work on at some point but i don't think it's the most important thing early on i think it's better to like get in games with the best decks and so i don't it's hard to give one person good advice because you don't know where they are as a player but i don't know that that's the first thing that comes to my mind is like play the good decks and watch other people play the good decks and then you'll understand why they're good and then you can use those ideas to help you build your own unique decks I think for me, my, at least a lot of what I have to sort of recommend is I think I've hit it, talked about it a little bit, and a lot of it's just being honest with yourself. I think we have uh, very natural inclinations to 
shrug off most uh, a lot of losses most of our losses as being not our faults and you know sometimes they are not they are out of our control some bad randomness and all that can happen but a lot of times too we're just not sort of critical enough about our own play and you know I, I failed to qualify for the Players Cup and I know that I should have been playing better like I know I have some bad luck to talk about too but so does everyone who played 50 keys it's a lot of variance in there but then also too I mean some of this is going to be sort of hampered by our online only events but just don't be afraid to ask like in sense like if you you play a good player or something and you narrowly lose you perhaps were in a board position where it looked like you were going to win and you don't understand what happened you talk to them like hey did i make a mistake somewhere you know what what about what about this game was easy for you essentially you know too and then kind of back to what we were saying too kind of regardless of the format the good players seem to always do well and that's for good reason. And I think it's sort of a, a culmination of all these things. But like Mikey said, too, there's there's so much of it, so many sort of building blocks that you need as your foundation before you can kind of work your way up to the harder meta, more difficult stuff. But I think at the end of the day, as long as you're hungry for it, you want to improve, it'll come naturally. But yeah, so, so I, I've, I've maybe three things that I'll, I'll say as, as by far the worst player here. <laughs> I have so much advice. <laughs> so one thing that I think is interesting is uh, like one of the things that I think is weird is I watch people publish all their spreadsheets about them playing out their keys and, and how the results went that, that I think is important. And, and I think Britt kind of got at is keeping track of your results and being real about like, like, you know, writing off your losses as like, like there, I recognize there's definitely bias when you don't keep track of how a deck is actually performing to understand if it's a good deck or not. And you know, if you're if you're testing a deck to see if it's a good deck, you you have to keep track of that stuff. And the thing that I think really surprised me when I see people's spreadsheets that I always take really seriously is I always track who went first and who went second. Because I found for a lot of decks, it makes such a huge difference. You know, I I, I know you know, my son when he got second at Collinsville Regionals, we played uh, Zoro Rock and. You know, he played approximately 20 games on each side, and he went 50-50 when he went second, and he won every game but one in the but one when he went first. Because, like, that's just how it be, right? <laughs> and, you know, if you went second all the time, you would think that's a bad deck. But if you went first all the time, you would be like, this deck cannot be beat. Like, you got to track that stuff because you got to know what's really, really, really happening. The other, the other, the, the two other ideas I have are, are actual like trying to get better at in-game play. We play a lot of turns open-handed when we're practicing, and I recognize it's harder in a time of pandemic. But I think the more you can have somebody kind of staring, you know, kind of looking over your shoulder, like all the coaching that my kids have done with Britt and Mike, like there's a lot of, you know, they're on PTCGO and they're playing a hand, and Britt and Mike are looking at their hand. And they're talking about how they should think about the turn. And I think the more input you get, the, the better off you're going to be. I mean, practice in every sport, they say, like, practice, it has to be intentional. And you have to be trying to get better at something. And if you have, like, a goal and you're getting input on that goal, I think it helps make that practice more productive. On, on a related note, the, the third thing I was going to say was, like, when, you know, Mike, maybe you've gotten this all the time, but one of the things that I thought was really unique when we were testing with Sam Chen, we, my kids got the chance to play with him once. And when he's practicing, 
the way he practices is like at the start of the turn, he tells you what he's trying to do. And he looks at his hand and he tells, he tells you the probability that he's going to pull it off. Like he's like, you know, I'm going to, I need to hit these three cards. He looks at his deck. He looks at his hand. He says, I'm going to ultra ball for a day day. I'm going to day day this whole hand away. You know, there's 20 cards left, three card combo. I, you know, there's, there's three of, of each of those outs. I have a, you know, 60% chance of hitting it. And then he'll like play out his turn and see how right or wrong or like, like what kind of randomness he gets. But, but the fact that he's that thoughtful when he practices about like how the turn's going to play out. And, and obviously like when he's calculating his probabilities, he's planning out the sequencing. You know, that's probably a really good exercise that, that we don't do enough when we practice. But you know, it, it seemed like when he was practicing, he was getting more value out of practicing than we were. I was like, man, he's already better. He doesn't need the value. <laughs> So you, both of you reminded me of something. So one thing is when I'm recording results, and this is something I've picked up specifically from Ross, Sam does it a little bit as well, but we'll record like not just, not just binary wins and losses, but we'll sometimes we'll write it as like a 0.5 or a 0.25. If we, you know, sometimes there's literally scenarios that come down to 50-50s, but sometimes it's a little more complicated and we'll write those down as, we usually don't go further than 0.5 or 0.25 and like 0.75, but I think that can help a little bit show some of the nuance of matchups and how close some games are. And the other thing, so getting specific on what Britt was saying about essentially being reflective on your own gameplay. There's lots of times where I try to make a mental note in a game of this is a deciding point that is a huge like branching paths where if I make this decision, I have to go on this game plan. And if I make this other decision, I have to go on a very different game plan. And I think it's especially important to note those as you're playing them. And then, you know, if you're practicing with a friend, you can actually play through both of those scenarios sometimes, depending, you can like roll the game back to that game state. But if you're playing online, you can still like play through one of those. And if it works out or if it doesn't work out, go back to that situation and try to replay the game in your head. Like what would have happened if I did this? And sometimes you'll notice that, you know, at the time it seemed like, you know, path A was a better decision, but maybe gaining some more information over the next couple of turns, you look back at it and you say, okay, maybe path B was a better line of play to go for. And so I think like being specifically reflective about game states like that can be really helpful as well. Yeah, you know, that's one of the nice things about the, the fact that, like, obviously I have my kids at home. We can, like, physically play with cards. A lot of times we'll, like, take a turn, and then if we don't like how it went, like, rewind it back and uh, play it a different way, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah we, we can also say, and we talk about this a lot, like, uh, it's funny how when they're playing against me, I somehow don't have the card I need to win in hand, and they're, like, you know, they're, they're trying to play to their outs. And, you know, when, when they're playing against good players, the players always have the card they need. <laughs> we're always trying to enforce like you got to assume that they have the stamp or they have the boss's order like whatever it is that they need like you should play your hand like they've got that card and you know it's a little easier when you're playing somebody you know than when you're just like laddering in ppcgo but that that's a really interesting point too because you have to recognize i think as you get better you start recognizing am i ahead in this game or am i behind because you have to play differently 
in different situations. If you're ahead, you want to essentially mitigate your risk. So you do assume that they have X card. But if you're behind, there's sometimes you need to make plays and be like, you know, I'm going to assume they don't have that card because if they have that card, I lose the game anyway. So let's just play like they don't have it and give my chance, give myself a chance to win the game rather than, you know, if I play safe and I'm already in a losing position, then I'm always going to lose, right? Right. So like one of my favorite examples, there was a Gengar in, I don't know, Legends Awaken. I don't know, it was like in 2008, 2009 format. And its ability was if you knocked it out, they flipped a coin. If heads, they kill you back. And one of the common strategies was using Oxy, which to knock it out, so it would do 20, and then it would get shuffled back in your deck. And so you get you would get around their ability. But there was lots of situations where, you know, you're behind against this Gengar deck. Sometimes you just got to knock out the Gengar and hope they flip tails. Like, that. <laughs> like that's that's it. Like You can't play around it sometimes. You just got to hope that, the, that you get there. Yeah. Why did you have that? Oh, I was just sacrilege towards the Stormfront set. I can't believe uh. you didn't remember. <laughs> that, set, that set is just so good. Gengar is just one of several very, very awesome cards mm-hmm. in that set. Yeah, that is one of the best. Just some heresy. That's all. <laughs> that is one of my the best fist set. All right, so Cam Cam zero zero nine. Hopefully that that satisfied your two objectives in your view. We very very much appreciate it. Keep the reviews and the questions uh, uh, coming. We will read every review on the pod. It is absolutely uh, fantastic. All right, Mike, you want to talk about Acrobike? Sure. So recently, oh, actually one deck that we should talk a little bit about is the Excadrill Chinchino deck, the attacking one that Sander from Europe posted. But so we'll talk about that in a little bit. But that kind of sparked this thought in my mind. He was playing Judge Whistle in the deck. And it's really, and he mentions, I think, in his tweet that he would like to play Acrobike. Obviously, Acrobike would be phenomenal in a deck like that that wants to burn through your deck. But it just got me thinking about Acrobike in general. I really, really miss it in this format. I really missed it at the beginning of this format, and then I kind of forgot about it, and now I've been thinking about it more again. I feel like Acrobike is just a very balanced card. It's not too strong. You know, there's an inherent risk in playing it, yet some decks can get a benefit. Like, for example, Malamar, if you played Acrobike, you have to, if you hit an energy to discard, that's really great. But there are, you know, very inherent risks, even in a deck that has benefits. You know, you Acrobike in a two Malamars, that sucks a lot. And it was a card that I think enabled you to play less the Dene and Crobats, or Crobat wasn't really out, but it allowed you to not have to play as much of the GX, you know, coming into play draw cards, which I think is somewhat of a contributing factor to, you know, how good ADP is in this format. Like if, if Scorch, for example, had access to Acrobikes, I think it wouldn't, it might not have to play two Dedenne and Acrobat. It might just have to play one of those cards because Acrobike plus Jirachi, I think, was a really powerful engine, especially. And Scorch obviously has synergy. If you discard an energy, that'd be really good. Part of this was also I was thinking about just different Scorch decks this week and how they just all feel so clunky. And I feel like if they could run for Acrobike, they would run much, much smoother. It's just, it, it's such a healthy card. It, I would really enjoy seeing it reprinted. You know, they've, they've chosen to include Juniper, Sycamore, Research in every single format. 
switch in basically every single format. Like Acrobike is a card that I wouldn't mind being in the format pretty much forever, at least. Like Acrobike, even Ultra Ball. Ultra Ball is a little bit, maybe a little bit too strong. But Acrobike, I feel like, is not too strong and not too weak. It goes through phases of being good and bad as well. Like sometimes it's bad. So, yeah, I don't know. You guys miss Acrobike as much as I do. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so you know, Ultra Ball is interesting because, like, I feel like there was that there was that brief window where there was no Ultra Ball, like right when Nest Ball came out or something like that. There was that window where there were like no ball cards in format for like six weeks or something, and that was a weird format. I don't like how Quick Balls replaced Ultra Ball because it's part of it's just more and more of this like March to Big Basics decks. Like, uh, you know, if Quick Ball is the ball card of choice and Ultra Ball is out, like. Why would you play a stage one deck? It makes it that much worse. It's horrible. That you know, the acrobatic thing is interesting. When you guys look back on the universe of cards, like I remember when we first started playing, we started playing during like Plasma, like right as XY was getting released. I mean, TDK was our first deck. We played Bicycle. Are there other item-based draw cards throughout time that have been like really good or were better or something? Item-based draw is very unique. Uh, I mean, Trainer's Mail is the only thing that even comes to mind. There were, and it was only, they were typically only played in one kind of deck, but the like Shepet Donk type, Oxy Donk type decks played a lot of items that were all pretty good. But they just never quite found a, a home in any of the other sort of meta decks, but it was really good in that deck because you just wanted to burn through your deck in one turn and so you only have like one energy and plus powers and you just do 20 and go back into your deck and you know you draw it at the end of draw it back at the end of every turn or at the start of your turn and just kind of loop with it and then there was the poker radar which was occasionally played in beedrill it was it was just kind of i think it looked at the top seven and you could take any pokemon you found but yeah, those are the only ones I can think of from the time that I played. Not, and nothing in the world stacks from the EX era. There's nothing really comes to mind. But yeah, Bicycle for for me was, I think, kind of a big deal when it got printed. People thought it was going to be really, really broken. And of course it, it wasn't, but it is a pretty good card. And I don't miss Acrobike specifically, but I think I would like to see some different evergreen cards. Like, I don't think... Professor's Research is a good one to have, for instance. I would like to see more stuff like Acrobike, more stuff like... Um, I'm not sure what even else would, but just like the slower cards. I don't like the March to Big Basics sort of is hand-in-hand hand with just the draw through your deck, care, care to the wind with your resource, resource management and whatnot. I just like the game when it's a little bit slower, I think. So I think Acrobike is good for even slow decks. So I think it would be a welcome sort of new addition to the cards that we never get rid of. I feel like my introduction to Acrobike was, and I don't know if there was a version of Acrobike prior to this, like with the Night March set and you had trainers mails and you had Acrobikes and you had battle compressors and you would just burn through your entire deck to turn one. And it was great. Battle compressor is not a card that should ever be reprinted. That card is insane. <laughs> You know, I think I want to say, Britt, I think you were the person who was lobbying virtually from like day two that they should errata that card to discard two cards. I remember I was, I, I do think I was 
harping on it as being the problem card long before many people. I remember, I think there's a Six Prizes article I wrote about it, about just the interactions. I don't remember wanting to limit it, but I, it was just, it was clearly the problem card. And then just time and time again, it kept being the problem card for all these control decks and things like that. But yeah, like with Night March and things like that, they sort of only have gotten better across time for the most part. But just the game itself was often decided on how many Battle Compressor you played on your first turn. And it was like, did you see three or maybe even four? It just doesn't matter what you're playing anymore. The game's over and, you know, things like that. But I just think that, yeah, I definitely definitely don't think Battle Compressor did really anything healthy for the game. That's for sure. It was occasionally cute as like a one of, but even still, it was just such a consistency boost like it just worked too well with the supporters when we had the vs seeker engine still it was just too good and so with your flareons and your night march just discarding any card in your deck just gets you so many anything you need and then even zorark just get your eggs all sorts of things just not yeah, a good print, card. printing it while bringing versus seeker back into the format seemed a little too cute almost but I remember, I mean, Russell Lepar, I remember him, like, the day they banned Lysander's trump card, it was, like, like the following week there was a League Cup ad that we went to. Or, I don't know, maybe it was the States back then or something. But he was ranting about how they had to ban Battle Compressor because he was, like, they printed Battle Compressor at the, you know, in the same set they printed trump card because you needed trump card to offset how incredibly stupid Battle Compressor is. And this is going to be the, the death of the format. Yep. <laughs> and I, you know, I guess you're if you're Russell, you're saying the format's dead. I was right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was. That's what I was gonna say too. It's like they printed compressors counter and then they banned it, and they obviously never tested battle compressor without trump card. So. <laughs> right. Now, I mean, having said that, uh, yeah, I felt like it turned out. You know, a, a supporter with being the counter was not a strong enough counter. Like people were still going. I mean, you would just put in all this item-based draw and, I mean, so many decks. Like, I mean, we were playing the, you know, Execute Lock deck uh, right right when they banned the uh, Trump card. And, like, you would literally burn through your entire deck turn one and then Trump card at the end of the turn, and you'd do it again the next turn. It was easy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the Seismitoad and the Executor deck both would just, like, alternate playing Juniper and Trump card every other turn. It was crazy. Yeah. Even sometimes, too, the trump cards weren't even enough to beat the Night March or the Flareon. Sometimes they would just, mm -hmm. all right, versus Seeker, discard. Like, they would just do it again. Their deck would be, at that point, just nothing but Pokemon and still just the, enough ways to discard everything. I like, it would be different when you could Quaking Punch and, and things, too. But I remember playing decks where you would just kind of tech the trump card because it had general utility but then in these matchups like maybe it would be enough and it wasn't usually you had to have you had to have something else behind it too it w even just playing it on its own wouldn't stop the battle compressor decks yeah i feel like guys like raul were were you saying you you know you had to figure out if they were playing trump card and if they were you just had to make sure you didn't play two of your battle compressors and then you'd wait for them to trump you and then you just do the whole thing again and it was easy as long as you, you know, it, 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 it put pressure on the other side to manage their resources a little, but it wasn't, like, onerous. Guys, right, anyway, I hate to do this, but <clears throat> should we talk about Players Cup? Yeah. 
Uh, I, I feel like we're bad predictors because it, I think it ended up being so much worse than we expected. <laughs> yeah, I was the closest, but I was still lowballing it. I think it ended up at 89. 89 with bubble, like some 89s won't make it. I think that's right. Let's see. Yeah. I have it up. Um, yep, 89 is bubble. Yeah, I mean, like, I mean, if Britt didn't make it, and I think Will Jenkins didn't make it, I mean, who are the who are the players that qualified? <laughs> <laughs> it was really tough. There's no question. I think this turned out to be much more difficult than I think people expected. Yeah, at least for North America, I feel like Europe and Oceania was about as expected. I don't have all the points for all, for those regions, but Europe was lower. I think in the 70s, low 70s, uh, and Oceania was really low. But that was expected. Oceania, I think pretty much everyone expected if I try at all, I'll make it in Europe a little bit more involved. But yeah, I think the North American, I don't know. So you can see how many people have have played any of these tournaments. And it's almost 3,000 people played in these events, at least one, at least. And something like 2,000 of them got some amount of points. Right. I was about to say, I, I was number 3,000. It was great. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you want to talk about some of the results? I know you've spent a little bit of time pouring through the list, Mike. You want to, you want to tell us what you're seeing? So I just think it's worth shouting out some of the people that maybe we recognize. Oh, there might be people in here that are good players that are known, but I don't know them matched up with their usernames. But... Ahmed Ali from Georgia, he came in third. Azul ended up in sixth place. Ross finished 10th. True story about Ahmed Ali. When I met him, I thought he was a Poké Dad. And I was like, dude, the Poké Dad, you're killing this tournament. He's like, I'm not a dad. I'm like, you're dad enough for me. <laughs> That's really funny. I feel like I know who Shiny Audino is, but I can't remember right now. He's number 12 or she's number 12. Uh, Poka Hawkeye is Andrew Hendrick, who's really proved himself in the online scene, number 14. Jake Earhart, number 19, also proved himself in uh, the online circuit. I ended up finishing 16th. Isaiah Bradner, 22. Justin Lambert, 25. Mm, what else we got? Andrew Mahone, 47. Flying Casual, 49. I don't know if that's Tate or... Uh, Lee, do you know Britt? <laughs> it's Tate. Okay. <laughs> TFP is 51. That's Johnny Rabbis. Who else we got? New Pit, 62. That's Alex Schmansky. Daniel Tavia, 66. Chip Ritchie, 70. Grant Manley, 82. I know who Tyranitar is, but I don't remember. Is that, is that Charizard Lounge? Tyranitar? Maybe. It might be. I don't remember. I think that's right. Um, so I just looked at the top 100. Those are the people that I know. I was trying to look for Pram. I don't know if he's on there. I know his name. SH Panda. I don't know if he ended up making it. Doesn't look like it. Yeah, he, uh, Pram had 79 points. So he missed. Two, three weeks ago, I, I watched him just like completely implode his first like seven or eight keys he played 
and oh, and then yeah. like he was ready to tilt and throw his keyboard and stuff. It was pretty. He he had the crazy braid hands. It was brutal. So the other thing I wanted to talk about is I watched. Obviously, I finished my keys a while ago, but so I was watching some of the streamers that were still that still had their keys because the, I was surprised at how many good players posted on Twitter like, oh, "I just finished my keys," you know. This was like last Friday, last Thursday, on Saturday, Sunday, some of them. Like Stefan posted that he finished them last week. Robin said that. you. I think we talked about it last week that we were surprised so many people had kind of put it off. And so I was watching Chip stream on Sunday, I think, and he still had like 10, 15 keys left at that time. And those tournaments looked way harder than the average ones that I was playing. Like there was like two or three tournaments in a row where he got paired against someone that he knew who they were like one. So, so just, and all the games, he was playing almost all meta decks, you know, throughout my tournaments, there was at least some not meta decks. And then there would often be like meta decks, but they clearly weren't a great list or, you know, maybe the person made some obvious mistakes and it just didn't seem like that was happening while I was watching ship play. And so it just seems like, the last couple of days were significantly harder than throughout the whole thing. And the tournaments were filling up like super, super quick. So that just goes to show that there was much, many more people playing as well, which inevitably leads to higher difficulty. So I do like my strategy of kind of spreading it out over time and not waiting until the end, uh, because it, it does seem like the very beginning, like the first week and the last couple of days were the hardest times. So that's good to know, I think, going forward. So Kyle Renfield is famous for playing Sylveon decks all the time. Got in with, I think, 100 uh, rep and basically played ADP the whole time. But So he did his differently than you did. And I think we've seen a couple of people do this. Essentially, he set aside a weekend and he played all his keys over like two eight-hour days because he wanted to oh, wow. recreate the tournament experience. He was like, I'm in a tournament zone mindset and, and do that. Do you feel like you feel like you were able like did you play more keys on, on days you were feeling good? Or were there times when you tried to like dial it in versus like ah, you know, I'm feeling a little mentally exhausted, I'm not gonna play any keys today? There was definitely some days that I skipped and I think the max number of tournaments I played in one day was five. The one benefit of how I did it was if I lost a tournament and was frustrated, sometimes you lose a tournament and you're not that frustrated. Like you lose a game, you're like, ah, oh, whatever, you know, I did my best. But some games you do end up being frustrated. You're like, ah, oh, you know, I had a 70% chance and I missed it. And you just start to go on tilt. And in those scenarios, I can just be like, all right, I'm done for the day. I don't want to play anymore. And, and I don't feel bad about that as, or anything where, you know, if I was doing a more marathon-y type of thing, I would have to, you know, maybe I'd take 15 minutes to cool myself down, but then I would kind of be forcing myself to play again. And I don't particularly like being in that frame of mind. So that was, yeah, I wonder if I was all um, tilty, would I stop or would I say, Oh, I got to play another game. Like this is how I get sucked into video <laughs> games where I'd be like, oh, I can't right. end on that note. So I better play again. And then I win and I'm like, Oh, I'm winning. I should keep going. <laughs> yeah. Right. 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 <laughs> That I, I, I forget, I, I remember I saw a tweet like uh, a couple of months ago that was basically that effect. It's like, you tell yourself like, well, I can't end on a loss. And then it's like, well, 
you win a game, you're like, well, I can't end on just one win. <laughs> it's got to be a win streak. <laughs> but so I, I like, I really kind of made that rule for myself though, that if I, be, and I, and I tried to stick with it. If I got frustrated from a loss, I would stop playing. Generally, if I kept winning, I kept playing. And, you know, there was only one or two times where like I won so many times in a row that I was like, oh, okay, it's been four tournaments or something like that. You know, that, that's just statistically not going to happen very often. You're going to lose more often than you, you know, you're going to lose more tournaments, maybe not right. more games right. than you win. But So I don't As know. Uh, I, I can see the merits of, of both. Yeah. <laughs> um, I can see the merits of both. Wambolt posted an article yesterday or this morning, maybe on Limitless. And he talked about his strategy, which was similar, not quite as intense as just a weekend, but he played them all during a week's time. And he said, the main reason for that is so he didn't have to adjust for like a changing metagame, which I think also has some validity to it. For sure, as I was playing the second half of my keys, I was much more aware of Pikaram being, you know, a force in the format than the first half because, you know, you know that, that Pikaram hammers didn't come out until, I don't know, whatever, three weeks ago, two, three weeks ago. So you do get to, you do get that benefit if you play in a small time frame. As yeah, well. that was something that Kyle mentioned. He said he, he part of his reason he did that was he wanted to burn all his keys before Altaria was legal. <laughs> Understandable. <laughs> He's playing ADP. He we should we should not have to deal with Altaria decks. Next question. So so that reminded me of it's a little little bit of a offshoot a tangent, but. Now I've been talking a little bit about ADP lists and running potentially two Mawiles, or do I run Duraladon for the Players' Cup, that type of stuff. And I had mentioned that one of the marks against Duraladon was that I feel like it opens up the prize race maybe too much. Being, you know, if you, if you open it against some decks, then they can kill ADP, kill the Duraladon, then kill a two-prizer. And... I do think most of the time that's not relevant, but I was playing a game today and I had Duraladon on my deck and it came up. So I want to let you know, Britt. I was playing against Pikaram, started Duraladon. And the way it goes against Pikaram a lot of the time, if they go for the tag bolt, they end up being very low on energy if you're able to kill that Pikaram. So that's what happened. But, so he took five fries on the tag bolt, but he had uh, a bolt in and he had you know enough time and enough energy that he was able to do exactly 130, but could never do... 160 and so i was like darn duraladon <laughs> ouch so probably not enough reason to not play duraladon but it did come up <laughs> let's do our sponsored moment with channel fireball guys if you're signing up for channel fireball this week use the use the word trash when you sign up and we will get a couple of shekels it would be super fantastic because you know, we're young and we needed the money. Channel Fireball, uh, any big news uh, that you saw this week on Channel Fireball, Britt? No, nothing too interesting. Last week I mentioned Isaiah Bradner's article on the Welder Box Toolbox deck, which is what I've played the most in the past week or so. Changed considerably, but I did base my list off his initially. It was a good starting place, but just didn't. F some of the counts were just a little wonky, I thought. But no, beyond that, I would just say Pram, Michael Pramowat has an interesting article about decklist optimization, but otherwise I would say it was a little bit slower in terms of content. But then again, there is the big tournament this weekend. 
which I look forward to participating in. It's got lots of prizes, store credit, bounty rewards if you beat any of the channel Pokemon, sponsored writers and content creators. I believe it's free entry still too. And to, again, I th believe it's a single elimination too. So it'll be fast or maybe it's just double elimination, but it's not a Swiss tournament at the very least. So, so do you know what you're gonna play? Probably just ADP. I keep, I've been pretty consistent about playing in the open every sun Sunday for a while now, but I just play my bad ideas, win a couple games and then go do my chores or something. But since there's cash on the line, I'll probably take it. Not, which isn't to say that I'm not taking it seriously with my Dragapult deck or the Sunforge list that I played this past Sunday. But no, I, I'd like to play the good ADP list and would will probably would like to be testing for my friends who have made the the next round of the Players' Cup. And so there, I'll maybe try the second Mawile or try this Aurora Energy Welder box I was just talking about. But definitely just trying to use it as a learning experience. Like, I not, might not be able to compete, at least in the official ones, but just trying to learn and use my time to, to help some friends if I can. How about you, Mike? Are you going to do a compete at the Channel Fireball Tournament? Not 100% sure yet, but I am leaning towards doing it yeah so i just double checked it is single elimination so it's kind of nice in the sense that you know you, you lose you can just go about your day but yeah i mean it's free seems fun it would be good practice for the players cup which is the weekend after yeah first round of players cup is november 7th so if i do play i'll probably play i'm almost certainly going to play adp for the players cup so i'll probably just play adp as well for this if i play it I played Sunscorch Salazzle for the Sunday Open this past week, and it was sort of on a whim, just based off something Mikey had said. And he had mentioned my Dragapult list that we talked about last week that wasn't playing Clefable, but just played like Jirachis and Hammers and Yelgrunts. He just kind of, as an aside, mentioned like, why not try that in Sunscorch? And so I did. And for whatever reason, I thought it made more sense to play Salazzle in that one. There was certainly room to fit it all, and I liked playing the Salazzle. But I, so, because essentially all I had to cut from Stefan's list was he plays like a, the Lieutenant Surge reset stamp, Jesse and James combo. I guess because you're just drawing so many cards with Salazzle, it's not that hard to dig through your deck to see it. But that's really kind of the only thing I had to cut. But it was, it was pretty good. I'm, I went, two and three before I dropped. I'm trying to remember what I played against. I lost I lost to a Decidueye Obstagoon, which Salazzles are not good enough because the deck doesn't play Volcanion anymore. So it was really close, like, but not quite good enough. You don't one-shot them and they can one-shot you after one um, attack once they start putting them on the bench. But yeah, it's slower. I really like Sonya. We've talked about that, that card a few times. I only started trying it because Mikey had mentioned it, and I really like the card. I think maybe that's just the old player in me. Like It, it reminds me of old times. It reminds me of Roseanne's Research, which was always the best supporter you could play. And this one's maybe even a little better, and it's too slow, essentially, <laughs> most of the time. Yeah. But I just like, I like to try it. I like the consistency of it. I haven't played enough of Scorch in general to be, I don't feel enough, well enough making a claim whether it's better or worse than the normal version. I just haven't 
played enough to say. But it, it's, it felt a little slow at times, to be sure. Like, you don't have the, the raw starting power of turn two Volcanion getting three energy on the board, maybe even more if you played a welder that turn two. You've got nothing but manual attachments and welder, so you're slower. You're much slower. You don't have quite as explosive power, but maybe the consistency and disruption package that Stefan plays makes up for it at the end of the day. But I would probably have to guess that the Jirachi build is a little better, if perhaps more inconsistent, maybe. That's a good segue into the other thing I wanted to talk about, and Brett brought it up as well. It's kind of like on the other end of the spectrum is the Center Scorch list that Ahmad, am I saying that right? Ahmad Ahmed played in the Players' Cup and whatever he got, what did I say? He got third, I think, yeah, in NA. And it's like, it, it's so straightforward. It's the most straightforward Center Scorch list that I've seen so far. 4-3 Center Scorch, 4 Volcanion, 2 Dedenne, 2 Crobat, 2 Eldegas, uh, a Cramorant, and a Heatran. And then it's a, the trainers are just four gear, four com, four quick ball, four switch, four welder, two boss, two stamp, three hearth, fourteen fire. That's the whole deck. It's just really straightforward. Looks really consistent. Looks like it does what it wants to do every time. And I feel like Center Scorch has kind of been in this weird like limbo. And and so like the lists that Britt was kind of talking about and I've thought about are a little bit more on like I wouldn't call them a control deck, but they're like a more controlly style of Senescorch. And I feel like most of the Jirachi lists that I've seen are kind of like in the middle where they, you know, they're running the scoop up package and they have this Giratina and sometimes they run hammers and sometimes they don't. And I, I feel like that might detract away from both strategies a little bit. And clearly that list is quite good. It's done really well in these tournaments. I don't want to say it's not a good list, but perhaps maybe going in one of these directions and really like going on the more extreme side is better. I don't know, but I'm really interested to try this list because I like the way it looks a lot. Two Eldegas is the thing that like really like made me go, oh wow, that's really interesting. So, so we're gonna give it a shot. So, so here, here's my question. I know last week we talked about this. Is there any world where you cut one of these cards for a surge so you can go surge double welder? <laughs> If I was playing like Magneton or Salazzle, I would definitely consider it. Right? You said that Stefan Salazzle list did run Surge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I like that. But probably not in the more straightforward one because you don't really want to be losing with that list. Fair enough. Fair enough. All right. Should we talk about uh, AI in uh, games, guys? The topic we've yeah. been threatening to talk about for weeks now. <laughs> Just one. So I guess to start things off, we were, I think Mikey just asked the question last week that got us on this topic, asked whether or not, you know, can we program, could we program a computer to play Pokemon as well as Tord or someone, let's say. And I think the answer depends. It's going to depend. There's a lot of kind of technical definitions to work out and how you think about them will affect your ability to answer it. So I'll try to set the stage properly and I'll do, I'll do my best to be a teacher in that I'm going to try to present both sides fairly and not, and not let you know what I actually think. So the big question, I guess too, to give some kind of 
setup. So DeepMind is, I think it's a Google organization. They're the ones kind of at the forefront of programming an AI, various computers to play games. And so they've done it with chess and they did it, I want to say recently, but I think it was really probably about four or five, three or four years ago, they did Go. And so they have a computer, their computer program play. I don't remember how it did in chess, but I remember the Go a little more familiarly and it just stomped this grandmaster. I believe they won like maybe one of the seven games or so they played. And I think the next project they're working on is StarCraft, I believe, which will be a little bit different. At that point, there's some mechanical prowess that the player needs to have, which obviously in a game like chess, you don't have to be technically proficient in any way. You just have to know the game. But anyways, I think too, also in, I don't know if you would remember this at all, Mikey, but I know Hearthstone has bots play it occasionally. I remember... They only ever play the really aggressive decks, and it's always pretty easy to tell. I don't know if they're really around anymore, but in the past, you could kind of usually tell, but they could win games. Some of them could get pretty highly ranked, so clearly we can program something, but obviously in this case, they, were, they, were, they weren't good enough to get Legend or anything. They could get pretty high sometimes with the right deck, but the, yeah, so kind of to back to talk about AI more specifically, there's two sort of distinctions there's strong ai and weak ai and so weak ai it would be the the idea that the computer program can sort of just like emulate or replicate copy in a sense sort of our a human's cognitive processes and so in that case it's kind of it would be like a different kind of thinking and i'll try to i'll try to explain uh, the two types of reasoning that go on in programming ai but so it doesn't it, at the very least i don't think people no one's really arguing about weak AI. Everyone thinks it's possible, if, if not already all over the place. Nor do they think there's any perhaps dangerous consequences, some sort of potential danger to avoid. So strong AI is kind of the real com- where the real conversation is. And strong AI is, it, it wouldn't be a case of emulation or replication. It's doing identical, a sort of a one-to-one correspondence. It's doing the exact same thing and it's processing and reasoning. And so a lot of people actually don't know where the conversation is in 2020, but f- for a long time, people really resisted strong AI. They, they didn't think it was possible, but I think the sort of paradigms are shifting and we're getting closer to being more on board with that distinction. And so there's also one more thing too, and I'll try to give the sort of thought experiment that goes along with all of this, but in programming AI, there's this sort of distinction between like what, it, what it's measuring when it's thinking. And so AIs are really, really good at making predictions and things like that, right? But that kind of reasoning is perhaps only one part of the reasoning we're doing because you can make predictions just based on data and it's just kind of like correlated thinking, right? Like you're making a prediction. And so this stuff is really, really easy to program for the most part. Like we have AIs that do this stuff every single day but what where i think ai is stumped in terms of its programming is like counterfactuals they don't they don't know i don't think they quite understand how to prog program or process you know what if it had not been such that like you know which i think it's a little different you can still do that in data but in terms of like other kind of predicting capabilities or capacities it just doesn't seem to be all quite there okay So that's a lot of information. So the last thing 
I think too, is just to kind of tie it all back into the, this is kind of the main thought experiment that's kind of supposed to test our intuitions about strong AI or weak AI or what it means to like know something. And so it's called the Chinese Room from John Searle. It's pretty, pretty famous. You've probably heard of him. I'm sure you may even know this whole thought experiment. But so we have a, we have this guy. It doesn't matter really who they, they are. They don't know any Chinese though. They're in this room alone by themselves and they're following an instruction manual or a computer program that helps them translate Chinese. And so all, what happens is someone slips a piece of paper under the door and it has uh, Chinese to it. And then he just has this perfect manual that he just kind of looks through, identifies, sort of correlates the characters to the letters and so on and so forth. And he does it just in the same way a computer does. And he gets it to process and it comes out the door, comes out the other side of the room in Mandarin. Then the question is, does the person who is doing the translating, the transposing, do they understand Chinese? So in that case, it's kind of a question is, is, is all there is, there is to going on to something like language, is it just correlated thinking or is there sort of another process too? And then also kind of to underlie that too, it's this, this bigger distinction between syntax and semantics. And so like AI can understand syntax, like they can follow rules and processes and procedure, but do they really understand or can they understand semantics? Like the content of things, the idea that, you know, like I, I see someone and I know they're thinking something. It's not necessarily clear that that's, you know, a robot would be able to observe that and would know that instinctually or intuitively or something like that. So that was a whole lot, quite a bit more than I intended. So the question for you guys is, I guess, if I did an okay job explaining things is, do you think we can do strong AI? Do you think in the, the Chinese room example, does the person doing the translating, do they know Chinese or are they just doing some kind of pattern matching? Mike, you wanna take a crack at it? Well, so I have studied the Chinese room thought experiment argument. Not, I wouldn't say substantially, but a fair amount. Uh, I took a philosophy of mind class when I was in college. So this was one of the things that we spent uh, a good amount of time on my, and then, you know, and then you get into lots of other stuff beyond that. But my, just the straightforward answer to the question, I would say that the person in the room, my own personal opinion is that the person in the room does not literally understand Chinese. He's simply, I don't know, he's essentially a computer program that is translating, but like the, the, pr the process itself is not understanding it. That's my first take on it. And it's still kind of where, it, it, I think it's what I thought initially and it's still what I think. I know there's like other versions of it that like let me think about it more, but maybe we don't want to get too deep into it. Do you think that just to try to keep it simple, do you think that thing that's missing, is that something that's programmable or is, are we just stuck with a weak computer, you know, we, a bad program playing Pokemon, let's say they're not quite as good as Tord. That's because I think that's kind of, that's, that's a bigger question because whether he knows Chinese or not, I think is really more of a question about language. So but kind of then the question is, if you, if you kind of step aside from that, like, 
what would it take to, to program him so he can he can correlate it and know it and understand it or something like that. So I'll, I'll give you I'll give you two remarks. First, I'll give you a quick story, and you can I'm sure you can somehow find a way to use this in the context of your classes and stuff because here's some real contextual duplication of your problem in the real world. Uh, so my wife's Asian, she's Chinese, but, but like. My wife was born in Boston, right? <laughs> and, and her grandmother came to live with her at a very young age, like when she was like one or two, and her grandmother essentially raised her. Like she, she essentially grew up, like when she went to kindergarten, she basically spoke no English. Like she spoke Chinese in the house. Her grandmother never spoke any English. And, but, but no surprise, over time, you know, I mean, today she would say, you know, if you dropped her in the middle of China, she could somehow escape, but like her Chinese is not good. And and she, she did spoken Chinese, but never written Chinese. And, and no surprise, much like the English language, like writing, it's a whole different story. Like if you don't know about phonics and sounding out words and stuff like you got nothing. So when she went off to college, she would try to, she would want to send her, I mean, we're super old. So we didn't, she, you know, obviously her grandmother didn't have email. She didn't really have email either. Like you would have to write a letter and send the person a letter. And she had a, a English to Chinese dictionary and she would sit down with the dictionary and she would write out a letter to her grandmother and, and send it. And like, that's what she would do when she wanted to send her grandmother a birthday card or something like that. And I think if you ask my wife, she would say, I absolutely do not know Chinese. <laughs> like, <laughs> right. Executing this process was not like, you know, she was not learning Chinese. She was not writing, you know, like, the fact that she wrote the characters did not mean that she felt like she had a mastery of the written language. So, I mean, you can take that for what it's worth, that real world instance of the Chinese room right there. Uh, the, the other thing I would say is like, I don't know if it, it I've always felt like the, the distinctions between weak AI and strong AI are important philosophically, but in practice, they're not necessarily super important. Like if I just tell you, I can train this machine to beat toward in Pokemon, like, even if it has absolutely no idea what it's doing, I mean, that's pretty good. We should do that. Like, <laughs> if, if I can, you know, if I can build a machine that grinds out the perfect 60 for any given meta, like, doesn't matter if the machine has any idea what it's doing. You know, I don't know that that's like, you know, self-awareness is not really the goal, right? It's a different yeah, goal. Well. Right, right. So that that's true. But so I think, kind of regardless is. But do you think it's like possible? You know, given infinite time and infinite resources, or is it? Is there just something that will will never get down, on the strong side, or maybe it doesn't exist? Maybe it, all humans are doing is really sort of on on the weaker end anyway. So that the strong side is just sort of a, a fantasy. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, this is this is big philosophy. This is definitely uh, your your realm uh, more than it's mine. Like. I mean, obviously, like my reaction is, I mean, all that I've ever seen software do is what I tell it to do. Like, if I tell it that, like, how long a player takes between plays should tell us something about the cards that they have in hand, then it'll be, like, aware that that's important. And, you know, I, like, I could, I could tell it that, like, that might be something that it should start, like, you know, machine learning on and seeing if it's important and, like, it could figure it out. Uh, you know, I mean, looking for tells in poker. Like, how do you teach a computer to do that? I don't know. I mean, you have to describe what a tell is. And maybe there's a world really far in the future where, you know, I mean, this is the idea of that, like, machine self-awareness where, it, like, 
figures out it on its own that this is an important factor that it should start machine learning on and like starts grinding on uh, things itself. But that seems so hard. This is like the, uh, I, I almost asked, I, I was going to ask if you had seen it, but I remembered we'd, we'd talked about it, but the, the first season of Westworld is so good. And it's about th this sort of question and it's basically perfect. And then it's just a, a big hot, hot dumpster fire <laughs> afterwards. But if you're interested in any of this, I think the first season is, will be oh, the first, worth, the first worth your time. Fantastic. First, yeah. first season was great writing. I mean, they definitely had a thing they were trying to do. And the second season was just, yeah, everything after that was an absolute train wreck. Horrible. Horrible. Much like the Game of Thrones guys. Once, once they got through the books and they had to start coming up with their own stories, you're like, mm, they're not very good writers. Yeah. <laughs> I know it's always so weird. I mean, not to get on a tangent about TV, but it's just like, like with Westworld, it's just like, we got a Nolan brother. He's writing it. He's writing it. And then after the, after the, after the first season, it's just like, no, he's just, he's a producer, which doesn't mean anything. His names, we're just slapping his name on it now. And that's just so common. I've, I've noticed. I don't know. Uh, speak, speaking of which, have you guys seen? Have you guys seen Ted Lasso? What's that? If you're looking for a TV show, it, the problem is it's on Apple TV, so it's like a little bit of a nightmare to try to actually get a hold of. But Ted Lasso is a fantastic TV show. It, it, Mike, if you and Kelly are looking for something fun, Ted Lasso. It is, it is a, about a uh, woman that gets the local soccer team in the, the divorce and decides to sink it by bringing an American football coach over to coach the, the football team. And, and it turns out he's just the nicest guy in the world. And everyone he comes into contact with wants to be their best selves. <laughs> perfect, perfect antidote for the craziness of uh, 2020. The only thing that I like want to contribute, I guess, to the discussion and why I think about it, at least in the context of Pokemon a lot, is to me, Pokemon seems like an X, I don't know if exponentially is the, it's probably not the, the most correct word, but you know what I mean when I say exponentially more complex than even something like Go. Now, I'm not saying that I would be a good Go player, I think there's, or even a chess player, I think there's like a crap ton to learn, but those games are very contained within their own stuff. And, and Pokemon is not contained. You know, things are changing all the time. There's probability, like the game is essentially all probability, but also probability of decks that you're going to play against, card inclusions that your opponents may have or they may not have. So there's just, I feel like there's so many more layers that go into it than, than something like, chess or go and so that's why I think about you know and, and and the conversation is not independent of the general AI discussion but I think it's different than than how it is for chess or go at least yeah and go is like chess in that there's no private information right I mean if if you're aware of the board state you're aware of everything whereas I like I think the hardest part in in building a computer that's good at Pokemon is yeah like you have to make assumptions about what's in their hand what's in their deck like they started Jirachi what does this mean like 
you know, they, if they start resource management or Angaroo, like you're going to play your turns differently. Right? <laughs> you, you have to recognize when you're not trying to go fast. And like, that's a concept that potentially you could articulate, but recognizing, you know, when, when you, well, you know, they, they start Waylord EX and they draw and pass. You should also draw and pass. That that's a weird thing that I think is is difficult to articulate. You know. Mm-hmm. Having said that, I would absolutely love it if PTCGO would make it so people could build you know Hearthstone Replay for Pokemon. It'd be so great. Yeah. And and I think Hearthstone Replay is like that's like the cornerstone of how you start that stuff, right? Like you just I mean. Step one is you start feeding in game logs and deck lists and you just start just like machine learning the heck out of it, right? Right, right, right. No, exactly. And, and, and I, you know, for, for all my complaining about big basics, we're kind of at a good time to <laughs> robot that plays Pokemon in that, like, if you give it ADP, it only has to learn how to play three turns. Mm-hmm. Like, that's going to be okay. <laughs> yeah, I don't think it would be super hard to make a, you know, a bot that played a certain deck, kind of like how Britt was talking about the, the very aggressive decks that were in Hearthstone. You could do the same thing. And like you said, in particular, ADP would be great right now. But then it could even like, quote unquote, learn its matchups. I, I don't know. I, I guess I don't, te- I don't know enough technical stuff about how, where AI is right now. But yeah, like I, well, I think what you do is you would say, okay, we're going to get, you know, we're going to get these you know, a million games played with ADP and, you know, against these, you know, 10 different decks and you just like feed it all in. And then when it sees this starter, it says like, there's an X probability I'm playing against this deck. Right. There's a Y probability I'm playing against this deck. Like these are the paths I go down as I play those decks. Uh, and, you know, and then we go back to my discussion about Xander's article last week where you like, you kind of say, okay, this is, this is the objective for this turn for this deck. What are we trying to do here? Like, like, how do I get to a win? When I looked at those million games and ADP won nine hundred thousand of them, you know what? What? What were like? What were the things that distinguished the wins from the losses? And how do I make you know my game look more like the the games that resulted in wins? Something like that. I don't know. Sounds right. Um, philosophy of the mind. I will say. It, it was the most besides logic which i really enjoyed but like of the more hard ph- philosophy classes or traditional philosophy classes that was by far my favorite one just thinking about what is consciousness i feel like i mean we could spend a lot of time talking about that in general but it did seem like there was a consensus what, what in cognitive science, there's like uh, a, a foundational theory. It's called like crumb or something like that. I don't know, but it seemed like basically all the AI researchers had to essentially have this, you know, foundational assumption that was captured in this, which is essentially that, you know, the consciousness is not separate from our physical body, right? And mm-hmm. You have to have that base assumption. And it always is very interesting to me. This is probably getting too far out there, but it's interesting to me that people can believe that, you know, AI, strong AI even is, is possible 
and be religious in the sense that, you know, you're in one sense, you're believing that the mind and the body are the same thing. If you think we can recreate it, but then you think they're two different things and I don't know. <laughs> right, right. They still don't have a soul. Right, right, right. Exactly. <laughs> well, I mean, I imagine we don't, this wasn't a point of talk it, but there you can be, I think you can be a consistent theist and have a reductive view about the mind. It'll take some, take some steps, but I don't, I don't think it would be hard. I don't have the answer. I philosophy of mind is like my second specialty. I, I, I do early Chinese philosophy is, is my favorite and what I want to sort of really specialize in, but underlying that is philosophy of mind. But yeah, it's hard, but yeah, there's some, more nuanced, scientific, savvy, theistic views out there. Not to say that I'm endorsing them or anything necessarily, but I think that your your concern can be resolved with relative ease, depending on your presuppositions and whatnot. Okay, good to know. Thanks for listening once again to a wonderful episode. Hope you learned something, a lot of different things flying at you this time, but that's what we're here for. A little bit of Pokemon, a little bit of other stuff. So we appreciate any lessons that you give and we will see you next week. Hopefully Britt and I will have won some money in the channel fireball tournament. That's the goal. <laughs>